Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Enduring force could equally describe my first guest this week because his journalistic career began in 1964 as a young reporter on the Daily Express, for whom he enjoyed a glorious career, the highlight of which, no doubt, was his renowned scoop when he found the great train robber Ronnie Biggs in Rio, more of which in a few moments' time. Latterly, racing fans came to know and love him first in his capacity as a writer on the Racing Post and then for 20 years as the chief correspondent on the Daily Mail from which he retired in 2008. But people like this man don't really retire. It's time for me to say a very good morning to Colin McKenzie. Colin, great to see you. Good morning, Nick. Nice to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming in. I say that people like you don't really retire because when journalism's in your blood and when the search for a story and a scoop's in your blood, it never really leaves you, does it? No, you're absolutely right. Um, I can't say I'm doing much journalism at the moment, although I write the odd article. Um, but I have been concentrating on uh, directing and writing some documentaries in the last four or five years, and I've had three on BBC Two, Channel Four, and Sky Arts. So, uh, and I'm looking for money for another one now. Ah, so this could be your perfect pitch. <laughs> uh, we'll come to that in, in a few moments' time. I mean, leaving Oxford in 1964, straight into a job on the Daily Express, and for the avoidance of doubt, the Daily Express at the time was a big deal. It was a, a proper paper. It was. I uh, applied to about 17 provincial papers um, in thinking that I'd get a proper training uh, at those papers and uh, all of them at that time, 1964, would rather have kids straight out of school. So as a last resort I wrote off to the Mail and the Express and to my utter astonishment was offered a job on both and as you say the Express was the huge uh, middle market paper at the time, uh, really was top dog and so I joined the Express. And what were those early days like? Well, they were hilarious. I mean, I, they started me off on the William Hickey column, um, which has produced many wonderful journalists down the years, and I just couldn't believe there were 12 people on this column, and it produced actually two columns a day, a first edition column, and then everybody was sent off into the town of a night to come back with scoops uh, from, from, from their night wanderings. And... Uh, it was, it was a, a real education. And then I, I had about two or three years on there and went into becoming the junior education correspondent. We had all those student uh, uprisings in the late 60s, uh, as you might or might not recall, you're too young. Uh, and then I went on to do news and then became a foreign correspondent in America for a while. And presumably it was sort of part of the culture that you would have to get yourself into a, a few scrapes along the way in order to get the, in order to get the best stories. Oh, Goodness, I, I had a million scrapes. I mean, the very first scrape I got into was my first week on the paper. And I submitted my expenses, £2.19 and sixpence. And I could see my editor's face was in absolute horror. He said, you can't possibly put that in. I thought, oh, my Lord, have I gone and defrauded them out of sixpence or something? He said, everybody puts in a minimum £15 or we'll all be found out. <laughs> So, so I learned a lesson very early on in life. Did, did, dare I say that set the tone for the next well, 45 years? <laughs> we try to stay ahead I'm of the not game? saying I was as good an expert at expenses as some, some of my colleagues, but uh, yeah, it certainly the salaries weren't terrific in journalism, and it was expected that journalists used to put in... Uh, one of, I mean, I'll never forget the, uh, uh, the 1967 war between... Uh, Israel and Egypt and our Rome correspondent Robin Stafford God bless his soul he died last year uh, was stuck in the desert for about six weeks and he was really short of an idea what to put in and he eventually uh, sent his expenses in and a purchase of camel 99 pounds 14 and 6 <laughs> 
and uh, that went through without a moment's, moment's doubt. But about three months later, back in his office in Rome, he got a telex from the office saying, How health, Beaverbrook, camel. And of course, you don't become a foreign correspondent unless you're fairly quick on your feet. And he, he, he telexed straight back to funeral of Beaverbrook camel, £12.9 <laughs> and sixpence. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, do you look back on those days and think that you really enjoyed the golden age of, of writing, the golden age of Fleet Street, and you, you couldn't really replicate that now, or are you not really a nostalgist by nature? I think time moves on, but there's no question. I think the journalists that were around in those days had the most fun. I mean, we didn't uh, uh, have the sort of instant reaction you can now get with uh, WhatsApping somebody in, uh, I mean, for example, we're going to talk about Biggs later, but I had to wait by a telephone for four hours after his arrest in Rio before I could get through to the office to tell him what had happened. I mean, you can't imagine. That's only 45 years ago. Uh, nowadays, you know, you can talk to somebody on the other side of the moon uh, and see them in pictures. So the whole landscape has changed dramatically. Uh, and it was a huge amount of fun in those days. There's no question... I think now you go into an office, go sometimes back into a party at the Daily Mail, and it's more like a sort of merchant bank. It's all quiet, there's no mm. cigarettes, there's no typewriters, uh, they're all glued to the screen. I'm terrified that some of these poor sub-editors will end up with uh, uh, repetitive strain syndrome, <laughs> or whatever it is, because uh, it doesn't seem quite the fun it used to be. We used to have four-hour lunches, get back to the office <laughs> drunk as skunks and how we got the paper out I have no idea I just want to time travel Colin you're, just, you're, <laughs> making, it, you're making it sound fantastically exciting but of course there was high pressure as well because you had a huge readership and you were expected to deliver uh, on stories and presumably if you didn't the consequences could be quite severe yes uh, the, the unions were quite powerful in those days and everybody was a member of the NUJ or whatever and of course the print unions were extremely powerful and they could hold a paper to ransom overnight, which is why uh, in 1986, when Rupert Murdoch decided to move to Canary Wharf, it was such a revolution in the whole uh, newspaper business. But you're right, uh, there was enormous pressure to produce good stories and produce scoops. Uh, and I um, know uh, I'm known for one particular scoop, but um, there were many others down the, down the years. Uh, I don't know whether you love being remembered for the Ronnie Big scoop finding Ronnie Biggs in Rio, or whether it's something that irks you because it's something that essentially defines your career. This is it. This is the front page of the Express in 1974. Uh, um, 74. 74. And so there that's we are. about the 30th of January, 74, I think. So, so tell me how it all started. Well, the big story. Yeah. Uh, well... Uh, it's a piece of complete and utter luck, which you, uh, sorry to use your name, mm. but like most good stories, uh, some of it's hard work and some of it is pure luck. And um, I gave a little pre-Christmas party. I was living in Battersea at the time, invited the neighbours, and one of the uh, our neighbours was a Russian countess whose son had been backpacking around South America uh, in the summer of 73. And uh, he met me, and um, he suddenly said, uh, oh, I met somebody you'd be fascinated to meet, having heard that you're a journalist. And before he could even finish the sentence, I said, you bumped into Ronnie Biggs in Rio, didn't you? And he went absolutely crimson. And I just knew I'd hit the nail on the head, and uh, I didn't pursue it for a couple of days. Took him down to the local pub, and I said, Constantine, I was right, wasn't I? He said, how on earth did you know that? I said, well, there are only two great stories around at the moment. One was trying to find Howard Hughes, 
The other one was trying to find the great trademark. We've been on the run for 10 years. And uh, I took a chance, and, and I'm right, aren't I? Because I, I could tell from your reaction. He said, well, I can't believe it. He said, you're absolutely right, I did meet him. And he then told me all about Biggs and his life in Rio and what was going on. And he then delivered the extraordinary news that Biggs had run out of money and ideas and was quite keen to give himself up for a bit of uh, reward for his wife in Australia, come back and do the rest of his time. Because between being sentenced to 30 years in 1963 and 1974, a new parole system had come in, so he wasn't going to have to serve yeah. 20 years minimum of the 30-year sentence. He would have only had to serve one-third. So he could face the idea of doing... He'd already done a year and a half before he escaped from Wandsworth Prison. He could face the idea of doing another eight and a half, nine years, uh, and then carrying on with his life. And so that was the basis upon which I was able to telephone him in Rio and, and set, set up a meeting with him. So in a sense, did you become his broker? No, I wasn't a broker. I wasn't, I wasn't telling anybody else. I was, the only thing I was prepared to do was to, uh, after I'd got the story and the full picture story and the story of his life on the run for nine and a half years, I was going to take him down to the British consulate in, uh, in Rio, mm. offer him up and say I'd come back with him on the first plane back to London, having had two weeks with him in advance. Unfortunately, that all went by the way when um, my, the editor of The Express, Mr Ian McColl, who is no longer with us, um, decided uh, off his own bat, without telling me or consulting me or consulting the staff, that he would uh, inform Scotland Yard what was going on. So your editor stitched you up, essentially. You still got a really good scoop, but it could have been a scoop times ten if he hadn't... Well, I'm it. not saying the scoop would have been any bigger, but we would have had uh, the proper result, mm. and Mr. Biggs would have been back inside. As a result of Mr. McCall's intervention with Scotland Yard, Slipper of the Yard was sent out there, arrested Biggs, and the Brazilian police, quite rightly, took umbrage. They weren't a banana republic, it was a huge country, and they wanted to know two things. First of all, what on earth was Scotland Yard doing without them, um, so much as a buy or leave, arresting somebody in, uh, in Copacabana? And secondly, what on earth how on earth had this man lived in Rio for four years? Uh, they were very, very tight on things like papers and passports and everything. How on earth had this man survived for four years undetected? And so the Brazilians took, took umbrage, sent him up to prison in Brasilia for three months while they decided what to do with him. And, of course, uh, the moment was lost, and poor Mr Slipper and his companion, Sergeant Jones, had to come back to London with their tails between their legs. What sort of impact did, did the whole episode leave on you personally? Well, uh, it was quite a shock um, when I learned what had happened and that, that the editor had, had uh, informed the police. I mean, a huge shock. And I was faced with a moral dilemma and uh, whether to tell Biggs or not. And in fact, uh, Bill Lovelace, my photographer, and I uh, were to be given four days with him before Slipper arrested him. And in the space of about five hours... I was uh, shocked to discover they were bringing it forward two days. Mm. And I had no chance of telling Biggs because he'd gone off with another girlfriend overnight and I had no idea where he'd gone. There were no mobile phones and in any case he hadn't paid his own phone bill so even if he'd gone to his own apartment I couldn't get hold of him. And I was going to offer him the choice of giving himself up to the police in Rio or going back on the run. And I never had that chance because he just walked straight into the trap when they set it for him the following morning. And they brought forward the arrest by two days. Again, um, basically uh, betraying us. So you've, you've gone to Rio and you, 
you've ended up forming a, a relationship of sorts with one of the most notorious criminals at the time, or that era or any other era. Did you, did you find you came to quite like him? I did. Uh, I did quite like him. And, and oddly enough, Biggs wasn't your archetypal um, villain in the sense that he was a sort of violent man. He was quite well read as a result of having been in prison. Mm -hmm. and, and he used to go in the prison library and read up. And uh, he was a very charming man. He'd learned Portuguese. Most villains wouldn't be capable of doing that in the space of four years, let's say, on the run. And he was quite a clever craftsman. He was a carpenter. And he'd been working for expat. Uh, Americans and Brits in Rio uh, doing up their houses and things and he was an engaging individual and um, he had this very beautiful girlfriend on his hands not the one who eventually gave birth to his child but uh, she was only about 22 and he was going on and on and on about the fact that you could pull birds like nobody's business in Rio <laughs> even as a 48 year old man or whatever he was at the time you know and uh, he was quite tall six foot one blue eyes quite a gringo, but very tanned, and, and he was a, a pleasant individual to talk to. So you found yourself warming to him. I, there was a lot of violence in the great train robbery, wasn't there? There, there was. That was well documented. Some violence. Um, and this uh, fellow, when I wrote a book subsequently, I went into this in great detail. Uh, the train driver, Mr Mills, was coshed over the head to force him to drive because Biggs's sole job in the train robbery was to produce a driver, mm. and he found this old boy in uh, Red Hill who was an ex-British uh, rail driver, and uh, he found he couldn't get the the, uh, the modern diesel started up and running again, so they coshed Mills to get him to drive the train an extra mile from where it had been stopped by a red signal to the bridge where they were able to take the, uh, take the uh, mailbags down to their waiting lorries. And so there was a, an element of violence uh, there with Mr Mills, and he ended up uh, uh, being coshed quite badly. But um, at his uh, um, inquest, after he died, about eight years later, it was revealed that it wasn't the uh, result of the train robbery, but he had actually been suffering from leukaemia prior, uh, prior to the great train robbery, Mr Mills, that is. Not that I'm trying to excuse them in any mm -hmm. way, but it was perhaps less violent than many other crimes subsequently have been. So for you as a 31-year-old to have secured one of the most famous scoops in, in Fleet Street history... Did you think to yourself, right, well, I just need to now keep doing this over and over again? Or did you think, well, I can't replicate that. That's it. That is the pinnacle of my career. Was it an odd feeling at the time? I never thought that at the time. Uh, obviously, it was a huge story, and I suppose I'll always be remembered for it. But I can tell you now that within two or three years, I was on the Lucan Trail. And to this day, I will not have it that he fell on his sword and jumped off a ferry going across to France and died because I found what I consider enough evidence in South Africa to confirm that he was alive five years later. In South sa Africa? In South Africa, to satisfy myself. Now, I've never been able to prove it, and the difference between Mr Biggs and Lord Lucan is that Lord Lucan never wished to be discovered. Uh, but so what, what did you find that was so compelling about Lord Lucan in South Africa? Well, I don't want to go into it too much because there is always a possibility I will be doing my memoirs shortly. But let me just say that there was a file in the Secret Service of uh, South Africa, which I got access to. Why would they have a file on Lucan if he wasn't there? And how do you think he got out of the country? Uh, he had help. From influential people From in influential people, but I shall say no more. Most of them are dead now anyway, but uh, I'm pretty sure he had a... The other thing uh, that convinced me was a very much similar uh, episode to the one I had when I discovered about Biggs, 
in that I met a member of Lucan's family and I won't go into too much detail but let me just say that they convinced me he's alive just give at, me at a, that time. Can you just give me a d bit of detail without completely ruining the memoirs? Well, let me just say that ITN claimed on a particular Sunday in 1979 that they were going to meet Lord Lucan in the West Indies and it so happened I was giving a Sunday lunch in Battersea at that time and my mutual friends with the members of the Lucan family, not the Lucan family, a big one, someone closely connected with the Lucan family were coming to lunch and that person laughed their socks off uh, as if to say, well, that's absolute rubbish. Because we know he's not in the West. And Indies. three months later, I took a little cutting from the Sunday Times about a businessman thought to be Lucan who was commuting between Botswana and Johannesburg. It was literally no more than six paragraphs. Laid that in front of the person concerned, and they went white. And it was the same reaction I got. Stro it strikes me, Colin, that your house in Battersea and its hospitality was the secret. To, <laughs> to everything. Well, you, 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 you were the host with the most. Well, uh, my poor wife had to do most of the hostessing, but uh, uh, we did have some interesting people there. I mean, do you remember somebody called Quentin Crisp? Well, I, know, I know who you mean. Obviously, the, I didn't know him personally, well, but obviously everyone's heard of Quentin the Crisp. The naked civil servant used to come round with his friend um, uh, Wally. Wally, his name is Peter York, who now is a, a sort of a guru on style, Peter York. He used to bring him round, and it was like inviting Oscar Wilde to lunch. It was so amusing. Uh, everything he said was hilarious. And so he used to come round about once a month because, uh, from his flat in Beaufort Street. Where, I mean, one of the things he said was, I never bother to clean my flat because after three years it looks no worse. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you found Biggs, you nearly found Lord Luke, and you were entertaining Quentin Crisp. Getting scoops on horse racing must have seemed an absolute breeze after this. Not very easy, actually, because it's a small world, horse racing. Now, um, you can upset people very readily and very easily. And when um, Bruff Scott very sweetly asked me um, in 1985 if I joined the Racing Post, a new paper that he was starting up, I absolutely grabbed it with both hands. And I, I, I was the news editor there for two years, but I also ran a diary column which was starting out with three days a week of diary items, and I very quickly discovered that you could offend people. <laughs> the deadly. racing folk are very sensitive, yeah. and uh, it was you know, it quickly got reduced to one day a week because it was just too much, you know. Well, do you do you think as a as a group of people we should take the Mickey out of each other a bit more? Well, I, I think racing, as Phil Bull once said, is the great triviality. Obviously, there's a lot of money involved, there are a lot of egos involved. It's a very serious business. Trainers are hugely impressive. Jockeys now are so fit and so such great sportsmen uh, compared with, say, 50 years ago. The whole game has changed now. Mm. But I do think we need a sense of humour about it sometimes. Yes, I do. Your, your greatest scoop probably relied on your, on your best instincts, essentially, and that was uh, Kieran Fallon when he was acquitted at the Old Bailey or the, the case collapsed essentially at the Old Bailey, the race-fixing case, and that was the story everyone was writing the next morning. Fallon acquitted, well, case collapses, you weren't writing that story. What story were you writing? Well, I had discovered um, that he had failed a dope test in France that summer, um, and I was pretty sure, you never get any cooperation from the French authorities, 
and I wasn't getting much cooperation from the uh, jockey club either. Um, but I was able, through uh, one or two contacts, to establish that he was going to face uh, a drugs case in France, and it would have been his second. Mm. So uh, having seen that what happened to Dean Gallagher, who got 18 months holiday for his second drugs offence in France, I was 99% certain that uh, Kieran Fallon was going to face the same problem. So while my colleagues had him back um, riding on the Monday, I, I took a little bit of a leap of faith and said, I'm sorry, this isn't going to happen. He's, uh, he's going to uh, be facing 18 months off. And what's more, he's going to lose his job at Coolmore. How much of a punt were you taking? How was risky a, was it? I, I was taking a slight punt on losing the job at Coolmore. I wasn't taking a punt. I, I knew he had failed the drug test. I won't go into why I knew, because I don't want to drop somebody in it, but uh, I did know that was a fact. And did you face much backlash from his employers or him at the time? I did. Um, I got all sorts of threats from uh, Coolmore. Luckily, I knew I was retiring four months later, so it wasn't going to affect my relations too drastically. Uh, and I'm happy to say they've been mended since. And, of course, everything I wrote turned out to be correct. So it's hard for them to show high dudgeon when everything was accurate. Did you find the same camaraderie and excitement in a race course press room or a racing press room as you had done back in the day at the, at the Express? Was it the nearest uh, you could get to it in the modern era? There's a lot of fun in, in racing press rooms, um, a lot of Mickey taking and all the rest of it. Fewer opportunities for great scoops because it's such a small world, you know. And uh, um, But it was a lot of fun. And unfortunately, that again, newspapers, print the print newspapers are not doing so well. Circulations are right down. Paper like The Times doesn't even have a racing correspondent, and that's a shocking situation. And very sad, and some of the others, like the Indy and the Guardian, they don't even print the race cards. Um, I'm happy that uh, my old paper still does, but Marcus Tyner, my successor, mm. he gets a lot of space on um, blogging and tweeting, and uh, but he doesn't get a lot in the paper compared with the amount I used to get in, and it's a, it's a great sadness to me. And uh, the, the world is changing radically in that sense. Uh, and I think everybody has to be more serious, everybody has to spend more time tweeting and watching this, that and the other. Um, you, getting scoops is very much harder, I think, now. I used to get scoops, if I got them, by simply going racing and then talking to people, mm. and that's the best way to find out what's going on in the world, you know. Yeah, the art of conversation is dying a little it bit, is, isn't it? It is, it is a bit, you know. Except yeah. on this programme, of course. <laughs> um, Colin, you're, one of your, your great friends from the, the racing press room has occupied that seat, Mr Cornelius Lysett from, from Five Live. Um, you and he sort of developed quite a good, good relationship. We did, yes. Yeah. So Cornelius is an old chum of mine. I'll, I'll tell you one little story about him. We were in Ireland about 15 years ago. I think it was Punchestown, and uh, this Irish trainer comes up to us, and um, he's got a runner running in about five minutes' time. He says, hello, Colin, how are you? Hello, Eamon. And he, uh, to Cornelius. I thought, that's a bit odd. And um, anyway, he chats away and chats away. He said, well, lads, uh, uh, I've got to go and see my horse run, so bye, Colin, bye, Eamon. <laughs> so I took Cornelius to one side after he disappeared, and I said, what is he calling you Eamon for? Is he mistaking you for somebody else? <laughs> oh, he said, no, I made a great mistake telling him where I went to school. I still looked a bit puzzled. He said, Eamon Uldetunian. <laughs> Funnily enough, I don't think he did tell that story when he was here. <laughs> you, might, you might be surprised to learn. So, you mentioned that you've got the memoirs potentially on the horizon. 
Uh, it's a possibility. It's a lot of hard work books. I've done two, and uh, they're jolly hard work. But I'm not sure anybody would bother to read them. But uh, I read Claude, my old colleague Claude Duval's book, which is very well written and beautifully mentions me every other page, but uh, I've forgiven him. And um, I just wondered if perhaps I should set some of this down for my children's benefit as much as anything. You know. And you've got six children? Well, I've got three daughters of my own and three stepdaughters, um, all gorgeous girls. And um, none of them interested in racing, sadly, but uh, all good fun. And hopefully all watching this morning somewhere. Well, even my actress daughter said she's got a friend who's got Racing UK or Brilliant. Racing Television. This so is Georgia, your Georgia, actress daughter, who's done very well, daughter. yeah. She has, yes. Absolutely. Yes. And, and you would, your, your tenure as tennis correspondent of the Ealing Gazette, which you were Sadly over. I, this was uh, the only time in my life I have written for, completely for free. Uh, and it was a lot of self-interest involved. Um, it got me uh, accredited to Wimbledon again, so <laughs> I could go my annual two-week fest. Uh, and sadly, I'm having a bit more trouble with that nowadays. But I found out Fred Perry began his tennis career in Ealing, which a lot of, not a lot of people know this. But he was an international table tennis player at 15, joined the Brentham Club down in Pittshanger, which is a little village just three miles from here, mm. and started playing tennis. And... Um, very quickly became world number one, you know. And I, I, my wife and I had our wedding anniversary party at this club earlier this year. I did a little bit of research, and to my utter astonishment, discovered that Perry and partner, aged 17, had beaten my father and his brother in the final of the Middlesex doubles championships, boys' doubles championships. So that was a lovely little link to Fred Perry. Colin McKenzie, I feel like you're one of these people who was always destined to have an interesting life. It has been a, an extremely fulfilling career, I'm sure, in journalism. Thank you so much for sharing some of it with us today. And don't forget, you must claim at least £15 in expenses. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm sure you'll have no problem. <laughs> Colin McKenzie. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai.